Welcome to The Grizzly Beat, a podcast of Grizzly Times and Louisa Wilcox, where we interview scientific experts, managers, Native Americans, writers, and others to share their knowledge, perspectives, and experience. This comes at a time of enormous interest in the grizzly bear's future as the government proposes to remove federal protections and citizens are asking important questions. We hope the information shared here will help listeners shape their own answers. This is Louisa Wilcox in the Grizzly Beat, and we're here today with Sam Pahola, who worked for 25 years for the Division of Law Enforcement in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, protecting wildlife from poaching and the trafficking in animal parts. Sam is here to share his experience and provide perspectives on the current grizzly bear debate. So welcome, Sam. How did you get interested in wildlife? Well, you know, I, I, a lot of people ask me that. How did I ever get interested in that? And, and it always takes me back to when I was 10 years old. I, be, I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and um, I saved up enough money to get my first set of binoculars and, and a bird book. And I began studying birds and, and uh, learning bird calls and the types of birds, and I took, I took a lot of notes. I took the temperature, the wind, the date, you know, the type, you know, just everything. Um, and whenever I'd see a particular bird or a number of birds, and then I'd, I'd describe their behavior, what they were doing. Um, and, I, and I took notes like that for quite a few years, uh, until I was probably about 14 or 15. Hmm. And uh, that, that was one part of how I got interested in wildlife. The other, the other part was, uh, and I, today I still keep a life list, although I, and having worked in a wildlife refuge in South Texas, after I graduated from New Mexico State in 1981, uh, it was one of the it was one of the premier areas for bird watching certain times of the year, because of the migrants coming up from Mexico uh, into South Texas and and eastern species of warblers and uh, all the local birds that were just unique to that area, you know things like green jays, chachalacas, um, green kingfishers, red-billed pigeons. I mean birds that every birder would just uh, give anything to have on their life list. Um, but the, uh, aside from the bird watching, I, I, my dad um, would take me um, mule deer hunting every year. Uh-huh. And uh, my dad had a, it was kind of his religious beliefs. You know, he was a Pueblo Indian. Uh, I grew up in, in a, on a, he was from a little reservation south of Albuquerque. Uh, Esleta, New Mexico, okay. and in um, their beliefs, they they did they did that kind of thing. They engaged in that kind of activity, uh, and um, I, I became very interested in wildlife from a combination of those two factors, uh, those, those two interests. Uh, right. But but the, the the hunting part was it was a religious ceremony. It wasn't yeah. you know, going out for trophy hunting, um, and that's how I guess if you had to pin it on one thing pinpoint one particular aspect of it, it would be the birding, because I was very much, I birded every day that I could, and developed a lifelong interest in in birding and studying birds. Wonderful. So how did you make the choice for a career in wildlife management and then law enforcement? Well, I have to go back to, and I, I don't know exactly where it started. I do, you know, I guess... My very first law enforcement experience was when I left the military in 1975, and I did some backpacking for a short period of time, and then I couldn't find a job. I could type 90 words a minute, 
But and, mm-hmm. and I took this test, and, and and of course the people said we've never had anybody come in here and do a, a ninety word a minute, with like no errors, uh, mm-hmm. for the test. And they said you should be able to get a, a position at any law firm here in Santa Fe. Well, that never happened, and the only available available jobs at the time uh, was at the state penitentiary in Santa Fe, in New Mexico State mm-hmm. Penitentiary. That had nothing to do with wildlife, but that's how I started my interest in some type of law enforcement career. So the time that I was there was less than a year, but with all that experience behind me, years later I didn't realize until many years later that that work in this uh, penitentiary, working maximum security, death row, and wow. shotgun patrol, and... Um, I, I, I learned so much from that. To me, I, I put that experience actually above my degree for the kind of law enforcement oh. work that I did later on with Fish and Wildlife. Uh, so we were around a lot of dangerous people. Um, I mean, they had a. I worked there in 1976. In 1980, they had a huge prison riot where the inmates took over that prison, and um, there were 33 inmates killed there. Uh, once it, it's a whole long story, but unfortunately I wasn't there. I was already in college. I was at New Mexico State. But the uh, I, I gravitated towards that. I actually was looking at Colorado State and Humboldt State, which have a great wildlife program. But I thought I would try New Mexico State University. They had a wildlife program there, and I, I just wa- I just felt compelled very strongly about going into that field. Initially, I was more interested in doing and conducting research and getting mm-hmm. in the research field. Um, but for for other reasons that, you know, I can't really explain clearly other than I started thinking the law enforcement program seemed very interesting to me. And um, I was actually, I wanted to work for Fish and Wildlife, no matter who, I, who you know, in what capacity. So my mm-hmm. first position actually working with Fish and Wildlife was those two wildlife refuges that I mentioned from New Mexico. Bosque de la Apache, mm-hmm. Las Vegas National Wildlife Refuge. I worked there for two six-month periods. Sam, once you got into law enforcement work, it sounds like you enjoyed some incredible successes, and maybe you can share a story or two about them. Yes, um, I, there was a lot. You know, I had a lot of fun in my career. It was a lot of tremendous amount of work, and uh, uh, there, there's, there's, there were there were just so many great things that I was, I mean, great things I worked with my colleagues with that I was able to, uh, it it was, the 1980s were a really great year for the Division of Law Enforcement, and I had Mm -hmm. the fortunate experience to work with a gentleman in Long Beach that had a a tremendous background in in, um, military intelligence, and Mm -hmm. uh, we fed off of each other. We worked parrot smuggling investigations. We put body wires on people. Uh, that were involved in the illegal parrot trade. We um, we worked together in, in tandem with another agent in, in that office that was an, uh, had an illegal background that would eventually got a, a law degree. So I, 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 there was there was a number of great successes in those years where we we just he and I worked uh, in, in together. You know, I I did the undercover work. He recognized that I had the ability to do the undercover work. But he was a great organizer and orchestrator, this this fellow, and um, did a did a I, I had a really great foundation for doing undercover work in large cases. I, I've always looked at the illegal wildlife trade as a global issue, mm-hmm. and uh, being a global issue, you, you're able to focus on cases that really will have a meaningful impact. 
Um, and, but it takes a tremendous amount of time and effort to do so. Well, what does it take to be an effective undercover expert? Well, you have to be, uh, you know, I have to tell you that um, I, ha- I had some great support along the way to do undercover work. Uh, there were the, I had a super- supervisors that supported me with that. And I'll give you an example. One of the first cases I worked on was back, like, in 1984, 85. I worked a, a trophy hunting group out of um, uh, that were operating out of the main character was operating out of Bakersfield, California, and they were they were hunting on uh, tribal lands, the Southern Ute Reservation and the Mountain Ute Reservation. And there were reports that the Colorado Division of Wildlife, I believe it was at the time, and California Fish and Game, they were looking at this one guy from Bakersfield. They said, there's no way he can get these huge trophy heads without doing something illegal. So I spent three years working on that group. I spent a whole year shooting competition silhouette tournaments. Well, had another name, had an alias. I had a great cover. I, I worked for the phone company. I, uh, I actually hung out with some people that I knew at the phone company. Uh, my former wife worked at the phone company, so I knew about <laughs> everything about the phone company. You know, I, uh-huh. you know, I had equipment. You know, I was, a, I was an installer repairman. That was my cover. Huh? I had corporate Olympics T-shirts from the phone company because I participated in it. I had coffee mugs. I had keychains. You know, I, I, that kind of thing. That was, uh-huh. it, it was a great company. If somebody wanted to check on me, well, that, I had everything covered. Right. And, and they did. So, like, uh, after the first year, I just got to know who these people were, identify who all the players were, and then for the next two years after that, um, and it wasn't even my case. I was asked to do the undercover work by the case agent who was in Grand Junction, Colorado. Uh-huh. And it was another district. So... Um, I guess when you say you really have to get in the frame of mind, it really is like acting. That's all. Uh-huh. That's what it is. It's acting. And um, I, I, you either have that ability or you don't. Right. Uh, some people have a lot of natural ability to do that. Other people have to develop it. I had a, you have to sell it. It's a big sales pitch. Right. You've got to believe in what you're doing, but you also have to be meticulous and cover every single minor detail, you know, every, every detail uh-huh. to the nth degree. And sometimes I would check my cover to make sure to see if I could break it, have someone huh? check around to see if they would be able to infiltrate and find out that I wasn't who I said I was. Right. So, um, so that never and, happened to you that anybody figured out that you were undercover? Well, they suspected. For, this, group, uh, this group after the second year, the, the second year, they started to look at me because I was the newer person. Uh-huh. And um, I always played the what-if game. Uh-huh. Um, I know this, this one particular time in that particular case, somebody threw a newspaper right down in front of my feet at like 3 o'clock in the morning when we were ready to go out on an elk hunt, and they said, hey, look at this. Look at the headlines here. And as a matter of what, what happened is there was a, a, a poacher that it was related to this, one of these guides and outfitters that were somehow related, somehow I couldn't remember exactly in what capacity, um, they might have been a cousin or something, but they were busted by Colorado Division of Wildlife, but they couldn't get the word to me. You know, there, were no, there was no cell phone technology. Right. So that, there was, I was out on my own working for days at a time with these people, and uh, there was no backup. So I, most of the work that I did, undercover work, I did by myself. Were you worried about your own safety? In, I mean, this sounds really dangerous. Well, you know, it's there again. Uh, because of the experience that I had working in a penitentiary, 
where there were people that were, had multiple life sentences, and, and, and I was around these people all the time. And generally, the people that I worked on with U.S. Fish and Wildlife, they're, they're white-collar criminals yeah. for the most part. Every once in a while, you come across somebody that, that crossed over into crimes like rape, robbery, burglary, uh, you know, those kinds of crimes. And, and there was actually a gentleman that wanted to be my informant that had like a four- or five-page rap sheet. And, but I felt comfortable enough to be around someone like that because I spent so much time around people like that. So I know they were trying to manipulate me, so you really have to pay attention when you're around the criminal element to ensure that you never cross that line and you never compromise yourself. So you've gone undercover with Safari Club International, right? Uh, yes, I did. And, uh, you know, it's a, to really understand Safari Club and, and the trophy hunting uh, mentality, I, I got to, like I mentioned, that first case that I worked on involving a legal, uh, an illegal guiding operation out of uh, southern Colorado. You know, they, were, they had legitimate guiding operation. It was a legitimate guiding operation, but they were doing illegal stuff at the time, too, on a side thing. Not all, not all criminals are engaged in illegal activity all the time. They also mm-hmm. are engaged in legal, legitimate activities. And when they feel they, some people, when they feel they can trust someone and take the shortcut, they'll do so. Um, so I was able to, to work on a, on a number of um, Safari Club International cases. And one I actually referred to another district. Uh, I had uh, contacts that I developed through Safari Club. And some people were foreign contacts from other, you know, from Zimbabwe, South Africa, those kinds of countries. Uh, and, and, and there were people that sometimes they said, you know what, you have to look at this person over here. You have to look at this guide and outfitting service over there. And um, I, I did so, and, and I was able to get some relative success for some of the cases. Uh, but you you really have to spend a lot of time in that circle of people before they can trust you to give you information. And um, I'll give you one example. There were five leopards that were seized in Denver, and I can't remember the exact year, but they were imported from, um, they, were, they were shipped from, um, from Africa into Denver, and the permits were all, they were CITES permits from Zimbabwe. But the leopards were killed in South Africa. They were smuggled over to Zimbabwe, but they had a CITES one permit from Zimbabwe that they paid for, because the original permits they had had expired. They were no good. Mm. Some, so they had to get some other permits from somewhere. And the the guide, he might have been, a, I believe, he's a South African guide. Um, they got the permits, and they paid five hundred dollars per permit, and. Um, I had somebody give me all the details of the shipment, everything, of uh, how the whole thing was, was going to come in, and, and just just people that were in another country were passing mm-hmm. this information on to me, and I'm over here. So it, it, was, it was great because, you know, I had, like, the details of the shipment, and then when it, the shipment arrived, the wildlife inspectors from U.S. Fish and Wildlife and the agents knew what to look for. So, in essence, that case, it, it, was, it was a good, successful prosecution. So, Safari Club is a major force in the current debate over the delisting 
of Yellowstone grizzly bears, the removal of their endangered species protections. And Safari Club has been pushing for this, as other hunting groups have, because of the opportunity to um, hunt a grizzly bear. Can you share your thoughts on Safari Club's agenda and where you think this might go if they had their way? Well, you know, it's, 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 having been around a number of Safari Club people, I've gone to a lot of conventions over the years, and I've got to listen to a lot of conversations. I've got to know some people. Some people help me. As people that were with Safari Club and have been members for years, they help me to, to clean up some of the, the, the problem areas where there, there was alleged violations that we had to look into and try and prove a case. Um, but I tell you, the mentality, having been around trophy hunters and gone with them, trophy hunting, you know, not the Safari Club guys in another country, but here in the States, um, there's, there's a particular type of, when people get involved, for example, in mule deer hunting, there are some people that just have to have the largest. It's not enough just to have a, a trophy head that's listed in Boone and Crockett. Uh, mm-hmm. or Pope and Young, it's, it's, for some people, they're fanatic about it. They want to have the very largest, the number one head, you know. And what I see, like, for example, in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, it would be a very prestigious hunt to be able to hunt grizzly bears from that ecosystem because it's, it's kind of like, hey, this has never happened. You know, they, they haven't mm-hmm. opened it up before. This is a grizzly from the lower 48 Mm-hmm. There's a lot of hunters that would pay a lot of money to hunt a grizzly bear in that ecosystem, and simply because of the recognition, um, just it, it, it's kind of bragging rights, and right. um, it's unfortunate that a lot of times there's there's kind of all these gray areas of conservation where people decide, well, you know what. We're, we're putting money into the economy here, and, and, and many times they do put a lot of money into these economies, but when it comes to the trickle-down theory, you know, where does it go? Mm-hmm. You know, how much goes to converse, conservation? There's a big debate about it. I know there's been some statistics that debunk a lot of the money in these African countries as mm-hmm. where the money goes, how much money actually reaches the people in the village at the village level, per se. So that's what I see with a grizzly bear thing, the lower 48, to be able to get a grizzly bear from the lower 48. It's just like they had that years ago. They had a polar grizz. Remember that? Right. They, right. They were, that was an exhibit at one of the safari club uh, conventions. It was a big draw. A lot of people wanted to see what a polar grizz looked like. Right. Um, right. People would want to uh, hunt something like that if they were bear hunters. I mean, yeah. serious bear hunters. So, Sam, you were... You worked in the Northern Rockies region and uh, are very familiar with what happens sometimes to grizzly bears, even under endangered species protections with poaching and whatnot. What do you think might be the consequences of delisting at this point? Well, I think the, 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 thing, the thing that really stuck out in my mind is, and, and it, it, it kind of depends how it plays out, once it's delisted, there's always the opportunity from these private interest groups to come in and uh, buy large tracts of land, force the federal government through Congress to liquidate some of these large tracts of federal lands, Bureau of Land Management, Forest Service land. 
these large areas where they can uh, develop it for oil and gas, fracking, wind mm-hmm. power. That's the big one. That's, that's a big pet peeve with me, wind power, because of the $12 billion a year subsidy that taxpayers pay for that. Right. Uh, I mean, there, there's so many opportunities for people can see development. Or someone could come in, uh, groups of multimillionaires, and they can buy large tracts of land and, and have uh, a hunting preserve set up mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. And, and have something like that. Um, there's, there's just so much. Once a species de- is delisted or it's not protected, and one of the big issues that I've seen recently is, like, the, for example, the wolverine. Uh, that whole thing with uh, the, that wolverine that was uh, M56 that right. found its way to North Dakota where the guy right. shot it and posted yeah. it on Facebook. But there was no consequences for that. Although, much to my surprise, this this cattle rancher contacted somebody about the killing mm-hmm. of the wolverine. But there's no consequences for that. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's it's just... When a species is not protected, I mean, you don't have the education for that species of the protection that it needs. Uh, it's, it's just the states, in my opinion, are not always that well-equipped to manage something like that right. and need the federal government. And I've proven that with, mining, with the mining industry in Nevada and the cases that I worked there and the mining gold and silver mining industry there. Mm-hmm. The state was running those, uh, you know, they were, they set up a voluntary reporting system for migratory bird deaths back in the early 1980s. Well, the industry had the impression that as long as they reported the bird deaths and did some proactive work, but they didn't have to do the, near the amount that they should have been doing, as long as they reported the bird deaths, they were off the hook. Right. Well, when we started investigating them back in, in the 1980s, mid-1980s, we started putting cases together, and we got a federal prosecutor that went after the mining companies. Much to the credit of the mining companies, they cleaned it up because there were consequences. Right. And that's the thing. That's the bottom line in wildlife management, wildlife law enforcement. There has to be consequences for these illegal actions. And right. people just do not have the respect for grizzly bears that they deserve to justify any kind of hunt. They really don't. Right. Uh, by and large, people are disrespectful of this magnificent creature, and people take the law in their own hands. It's just the way some right. types of people operate, and um, it's just the way some types of individuals feel entitled and because uh, they feel that uh, the government's not going to do it. Well, they're going to take the law in their own hands. Right, right. So you worked for U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for 25 years and described uh, just earlier that the 80s, uh, when you were doing a lot of this work, were, was a heyday of law enforcement. And uh, it appears that it's somewhat diminished from what it has been. And a recent survey by the Union of Concerned Scientists showed that over 70% of the employees who worked for the agency and responded to the survey are concerned about the excessive political orientation of today's leaders uh, who they think are compromising the mission and the effectiveness of the agency. What are your thoughts on the problem, and how would you address it? Yeah, that, that is an ongoing, well-documented issue of scientific um, misconduct. It's, it's been ongoing for a number of years. There's many, many examples of it that have been investigated by the, um, you know, through peer 
Mm -hmm. uh, public employees for, uh, what is it, ethical responsibility? Environmental responsibility. Environmental responsibility. you got the peer group um, and also the uh, uh, inspector general's office. They've looked into allegations of this kind of misbehavior by high-level officials of scientific misconduct. And, you know, when... the thing that I see is there's never been, to, to the best of my knowledge, a, a director for Fish and Wildlife Service that has a strong uh, scientific research background. I've mm. never seen that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's right. the, the, the one director that comes, in my mind, that I see that really has actually taken a stand for the grizzly bears was Jamie Clark recently. Right. Uh, former director of Fish and Wildlife, she, she made some very strong, a very strong impression with me, and I think with many others, about taking a strong stance to, to, to not delist. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it speaks volumes. With, the, but there were so many other people that were in leadership positions years ago. You, they're, they're, you don't hear anything. Right. And I, I think it, it boils down to this, a lot of these people are political appointees. Right, and they're swayed, you know, uh, swayed by um, outside forces, outside, you know, uh, special interest groups, and um, you know, it's. I have to say one phrase. Uh, it's mm. it's there, and this is the phrase that I've always used: is a lot of these political appointees, they're trading in their professional integrity for political expediency. Right. And, and that's that's the number one thing that I see is, um, is do as I say, don't do as I do. Right. And uh, it's it's blatant. I mean, so some of these cases are it's blatant scientific misconduct in mm-hmm. the past with other species, not necessar- not with grizzly bears that I could see, but um, there's decisions made with grizzly bears in the last delisting that shows that they did ignore the science. Yes, absolutely. And and, and but. Um, people have to, they have to weigh in and, and, and ask. When you have all these scientists speaking out that are asking, and it was ill-conceived. The delisting was, it, it was ill-prepared. It, it's, you know, they didn't consult with the Park Service. They didn't consult with the, the Native tribes, uh, Native American mm-hmm. tribes that were involved. They were totally ignored. So it got, it was very poorly executed. And they should have just canceled it right there and gone back to the drawing board and tried for another administration. Right. Um, well, they're not done yet. I mean, the final decision is yet to come out, so there may be there may be a change of heart with uh, hopefully with the new administration. We can only hope. I mean, you know, it's just it's it's you see this over and over again. I've seen it over and over again from when, and it doesn't matter whether it's Republican or Democrat now. There seems mm-hmm. to be so much a political catering to special interest groups. Um, that are not in the, the don't have the best interest of the Grizzlies over the long term. Sam, you're an actor these days. How does your current work dovetail with your previous life as a law enforcement agent for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service? Uh, that's you know they, they go they actually being being an actor is 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 the fun part nowadays because I don't have you know I don't have to worry about making a mistake. Uh, that is going to be a costly mistake. And when 
I was in character in my career, sometimes when I had this persona, I had this other name, I had this another, other job title, I had to be that person for anywhere from uh, a month to six months to four years. Wow. And, and be able to turn it off and on. And it, it, was, a, it was a really full-time acting type position. I mean, you have to <laughs> sell yourself. You have to make, and you've got to pay attention. You have to like these people. You uh. have to come across as being genuine. Right. And and listening, being a good listener, that's what undercover work that I learned was all about. It's about being a good listener right. and listening and understanding where the person is coming from. But also, I used to collect intelligence on the people that I would work undercover on so I'd get to know everything about them before I even met them. Wow. And that allowed me to mold myself into a person that I knew they would like. So there's a lot of planning there's a lot of um, – I used to memorize license plates all the time. I played mind, you know, memorization games. Because you have to mer- remember, when I started doing this work, they were, they were, you couldn't carry a tape recorder for a week and a half out in the woods. Right. So you had to take notes. You had to pay attention. You had to write down these notes and hide them where no one else could find them. Um, wow. They don't do that kind of work anymore, you know. It's just they don't send agents out anymore like that. It's it's actually kind of a liability to do that mm. um, in this day and age. But mm. um, it's the acting part of it. It's it's very much. Uh, it, it I can relate to it so easily because I started studying acting in, in 2010, mm. and. Um, I took acting courses for like two years and found it to be very much like undercover work. You're getting in a role, but the roles are shorter and they're more fun. Right. And uh, so, so in May 30th of 2012, I joined SAG-AFTRA. Uh-huh. And on April 9th, I had the first opportunity that I really had with my first my first full-time, my first acting position as a SAG actor. Huh. And that was right alongside Al Pacino and the film Stand-Up Guys. Wow. And I was a prison guard escorting Al Pacino up to the gate where he met his, um, his partner in crime who was being portrayed by Christopher Walken. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it was at a mothball prison in downtown L.A. Uh-huh. And... Um, it was actually kind of funny because there were four people there that day portraying themselves. You know, we were portraying ourselves as prison guards. And Fisher Stevens, who directed The Cove, asked, you know, I said, well, where's, where's the guy that's the prison guard? And I raised my hand. He says, when were you a prison guard? I said, 1976. Perfect. That's the time frame for this film. Huh. So I want you to be able to help our staff Make sure that they get the unit. You get the, they get the uniforms right. The badges in the right place. The keys are in the right place for the prison. Uh-huh. And um, so I did that. You know, I was I, I helped everybody get in the uniform. We came back, and then he says, Sam, let me ask you something. When someone gets out of prison, and you worked at this prison where you worked at this state prison, and somebody was leaving permanently from the prison. Would you let them walk up to the gate by themselves, or would you escort them? 
I said, well, if they've been in prison for over 10 years, I'd escort them up to the gate. And then what? And I said, then I'd shake their hand and I'd say, good luck. He says, that's what we're going to do? We're going to do it just like that. <laughs> and so, so we did. We did a number of takes, and um, I got to walk alongside Al Pacino. And I, I learned so much by watching Mr. Pacino for the number of hours that I stood next to him to get that uh-huh. scene. Why does good law enforcement for wildlife matter? Uh, that's a really good point. We have to look at wildlife law enforcement in, in a global way now because the world is getting smaller and the exponential growth of wildlife trafficking has, has been tied uh, recently and, and it's probably been longer than we realized to a number of terrorist groups in the Mideast such as uh, the Al-Shabaab that are involved in, uh, in, from Somalia, that, that uh, terrorist group and um, there's reports that they're involved in trafficking of ivory, the Boko Haram in Nigeria, mm-hmm. the Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda. Uh, there's untold thousands of elephants that are being killed for their ivory tusks, and the value of ivory has gone up exponentially. And unfortunately, the European Union is not yet able to ban all ivory trade. And um, that needs to be explored. They need to pursue that because the value of ivory now has gone up exponentially. Um, so you have these. The other reason it's important be because these transnational wildlife criminal syndicates are on the move globally and have been for years now. It's a lot more sophisticated now. A lot of these mm. transnational wildlife criminal syndicates have found it to be a very lucrative. lucrative aspect of garnering illegal monies to fund their particular interests. And yeah. um, because, because the, the, the penalties, it's very difficult. I mean, the, the penalties, they're just not, the penalties aren't harsh enough. They really aren't. Mm. And in fact, when we investigated many of the wildlife crimes that we investigated here in the States back in the 1980s, we had pretty good penalties then. There was the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984, hmm. uh, which brought about some uh, incredible sweeping changes in the ju- judicial system that took the ability of judges to be able to deviate unless they had a written opinion from certain sentencing sentencing guidelines. There was a, a, uh, this thing established called sentencing guidelines where there was a chart, and based on the person's criminal history, there would add, be so many points added up, and that would determine what kind of sentencing they got. So that mm-hmm. dramatically changed things. Mm. Um, but at the same time, Fish and Wildlife agents have to compete with cases with the DEA, the FBI, IRS, ATF, uh, for their cases. So when we go to the federal prosecutors that we go to, the U.S. Attorney's Office, we have to be able to sell ourselves to be able to to emphasize why these cases are important enough to justify. So with grizzly bears, um, they could be caught up uh, increasingly in this wildlife trafficking uh, problem worldwide as we're seeing economies in Southeast Asia improve, and so too is the pressure on wildlife parts used in traditional Chinese medicine. And one part of that uh, medicine practices uh, relies on the grizzly bear or bear gallbladder, which can fetch many thousands of dollars on the black market. Uh, we've seen um, the trade in gall uh, increase in the U.S. and Alaska. 
What do you think could happen if uh, protections were stripped for the grizzly bear in Yellowstone? Uh, it's, when you look at the big picture of bears across the world, there's eight species of bears in the world. Um, and of those eight, six are imperiled species. Mm-hmm. And, and they're all threatened. The six of the eight are, are imperiled with, and threatened with extinction. And when looking at it from that aspect, when you see those large bears from around the world, those large species of bears that are being impacted to that extent, and much of it is due to, I mean, it's, it's a combination of things, but when you start looking at the illegal uh, trafficking in bear parts and bear part products, that's, that's, a, big, uh, that's a big unknown. It usually, I mean, it's so clandestine, it's, it's very often difficult to detect. And um, it's, it's a, for example, a bear gallbladder, a grizzly bear gallbladder is purported to go for $10,000 or more mm-hmm. for a grizzly or a bear, uh, brown bear on the black market. And the other problem that's compounding that is there are not enough agents and I don't think there's, there, there may be one agent in the whole United States right now, maybe two with Fish and Wildlife. There's fluent in Mandarin and in Cantonese. Ah. So, and, and, and no Korean agents that I know of, I could be wrong, but um, historically we never had a single agent uh, that could speak, speak Mandarin or Cantonese back in the 80s or 90s that could speak it fluently. Uh, you worked uh, in Idaho and worked on cases uh, involving illegal poisoning of wildlife, including raptors. Um, are you, do you have concern that such activities are still occurring today? And, and what are your thoughts? Uh, could, uh, do you have thoughts about what the implications might be for grizzly bears? Well, I did work, I did work up there like once on one particular case that I can say that I worked on up there. Mm-hmm. And I've mentioned this before, and it was involving um, they were putting out um, Temek. And uh, they ended up, the, the, uh, the animal that was killed was a bald eagle. And it was put oh. out for either coyotes or grizzly bears. Uh, those kinds of cases are very difficult to prove because generally, and, and this is why it's so important to have grizzlies protected federally. An animal can get poisoned, can go off in the woods and die. Mm-hmm. And being able to test that animal or test that particular animal, it just is, it would have to be a coincidence or somehow someone comes across it, finds it dead, and the carcass is not sufficiently decomposed to where they can take parts of that and test it. Right. And deter- possibly determine the cause of death. But that, you know, then you have to prove who did it. Um, Poisoning cases are very difficult to make. Mm-hmm. And um, in Nevada, when I worked in the mining industry, it was easier there because we knew what the poison was. It was cyanide with the mining industry. Right. But when you're in public land and large tracts of public land where grizzlies and other animals are about, and if somebody puts out a poison, it, it, the poison doesn't determine, you know, what animal is going to be killed, what animal is going to die. So it's... Right. It's a very problematic issue. You really can't put your finger on, well, there's going to be X number of probable poisons. It's a very big unknown. Right. And because of that, that's why and we have a federal forensics wildlife lab up in Ashland, Oregon, that is a premier wildlife lab in the country, in the world, actually. 
It's like the Scotland Yard of Wildlife uh, Forensics. And they're able to do a lot of very specific testing up there. The standards are like Scotland Yard standards. They're, they're above reproach. Wow. And many of the states and in many foreign countries send um, uh, samples there for testing for various issues in, involving wildlife trafficking. They do ballistics testing up there. Another reason to have grizzly bears protected is to make sure that they have a federal nexus that right. would provide them the highest level of attention if there is indeed a type of poisoning or a shooting. I worry a lot about the indiscriminate shooting. There seems to be a very big propensity for that. Um, indeed. And, it's and increasing. With, oh. It's increasing. And um, having worked covertly on some of these rogue Poachers, uh, uh, getting inside the mindset of these people, many of them operate very surreptitiously. It takes a great deal of time to catch someone like that, and mm -hmm. covert operations are probably the best opportunity to do so, but unfortunately it takes a great deal of time and commitment to be able to prove something like that, especially right. if they're, they're kind of so-called lone wolf operators, people that are doing it on their own, but they're not sharing that information with anybody. All right. So, Sam, after delisting of grizzly bears in Yellowstone, the states will take over the primary authority to manage them, not the federal government. Uh, can you describe the basic differences between the enforcement of federal versus state laws? And do you have concerns about the state's ability to prevent poaching after delisting? Well, you know, states... Um the states have the authority to regulate animals within their borders, and obviously the federal government can regulate wildlife um, when it comes to animals being killed illegally in one state and transported across state lines. Um, we have, that's why we have the Lacey Act, which was enacted in 1900, which is uh, any kind of underlying, underlying state, tribal, federal, or foreign law is used as the predicate for attaching um, whenever there's an investigation into a wildlife crime. And basically, under the Lacey Act, it's unlawful to import, export, sell, acquire, or purchase any fish or wildlife or plant that are taken, possessed, transported, or sold in violation of U.S. or, or Indian or tribal law, Indian law or tribal law, or in interstate or foreign commerce. And that involves plants, any kind of wildlife, wildlife product, and, but it also involves now any kind of uh, illegally logged product of, of uh, wood coming from some of these foreign countries that are imported mm. into the U.S. That was amended in 2008. There was an amend special amendment because of the widespread logging, illegal logging in these foreign countries. But the state law, the states really do, and the feds really they need the states, and the states need the feds when it comes to managing the grizzly bears. They really do need each other to be able right. to do this effectively because, of the, first of all, the limited number of bears that experts, some experts say there's like 700. Yeah. Really don't know how many there really are. I mean, everything in, bio in biology and science, it's a lot of these things are, are, uh, are uh, highly educated guesstimates. And we need to we need to err on the side of caution and, and should be more cognizant of of really to work hand in hand with the states and not leave the federal government out of it because when it comes to the jurisdiction, 
and being able to prosecute some cases, there are certain cases sometimes where a case is politically charged and states will defer to the federal government to investigate that. Right. I've personally witnessed this in a number of, well, at least one big game case that comes to mind when I was working in Nevada. And um, that involves some big game hunters from outside the state. They were in Pennsylvania, and the guide, the illegal guide was in Nevada. The state asked me to investigate and help them with it, and it was going to be prosecuted in state court. But under the state, um, the DA, the district attorneys, the rules in Nevada were you can't record any phone call, converse, any phone conversation. But under federal law, with the proper uh, case report and, and submission through the channels, we have to get authority to do that, and the federal government can do that. But for some reason in Nevada, that was prohibited. Couldn't do it under any circumstances. They were going to prosecute these people in state court, but I taped the phone calls anyway because I had a feeling that this was going to be political, and it did turn. Some re, for some reason, the district attorney turned the case down, and the state officer I was working with said, "Sorry, we can't prosecute this in state court." There's some underlying reason the district attorney dismissed the case, hmm. and I took it to the federal prosecutor, and he said, "The federal prosecutor told me, Sam, you you better have recorded these phone calls." I've been reading your reports, and I hope you recorded everything because uh, we need to have good evidence here. Well, I recorded the phone calls anyway mm-hmm. because even though the state law said you couldn't record them, I just didn't feel this was going to go into state court, and it didn't. It was dismissed completely, but because I recorded the call, they took this case and they turned it into a Lacey Act investigation, and they ended up mm. charging the hunters the hunters from Pennsylvania that seized these trophy mule deer heads that were taken illegally in Nevada, and they charged the, the guide and outfitter for illegal, running an illegal guiding and outfitting operation without a state license. Oh, right. So, there, so that, that predicated the Lacey Act. The guide was involved in violating the Lacey Act because they did not have a state license, so he violated state law. And then we use that as the underlying law to attach the Lacey Act to. But, but that's, that's why the federal laws are so important. State laws are important as well. But they need right. to work in tandem with the limited number of bears we have in the world and with six of the most imperiled bear species out of the eight. I mean, why take a chance? Well, the right. bears deserve everything that we can possibly do for them. Sam, thank you so much. This is Louisa Wilcox talking today with Sam Hohola. Thank you.